Amen. Before we're seated, let's pray aloud the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this morning we continue our series through the first three chapters of Genesis. And we're calling it Foundations because just so much of what we see here is foundational. We'll see more of it today. But where have we been? Well, God created all things. He created the heavens and the earth. This world is not a product of chance, random, and personal processes, but the result of the wise design of an all-powerful God. And then he creates us. He creates mankind in his image, every human full of dignity and value and worth and purpose. And he tells us that purpose in Genesis 1.28, and that is to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the whole world. Build families, have babies who will fear God and spread across the globe, subduing and ruling and taking dominion. Ruling on God's behalf, that's what we do. We bring his rule to bear wherever we are. We work for his glory and the good of our neighbor. And then as we saw last week, he instituted marriage to be one of the main vehicles with which he's going to do all that. And it was all good. Everything was good. 131, very good. The verse that we just finished up with was they were naked and unashamed but it doesn't last long. Enter Genesis chapter 3. Look there with me. Genesis 3, 1 to 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Let's consider this morning the shrewdness of the serpent, the schemes of the serpent, and then self-salvation, which is the default mode of the fallen human heart. So first, the shrewdness of the serpent. We see it right there in the first verse. It says he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He was the most cunning of all. And the Bible doesn't tell us where this wicked, evil creature comes in to God's good world from. It's kind of left a mystery. And here, we don't have time to unpack it, but here we have the famous or infamous problem of evil. And I want to make just two notes real quick. Number one, it's a problem for everybody. Sometimes atheists like to attack Christians with this. Well, this is the problem of evil. But it's actually a problem for every person, for every religion, for every worldview. Every view has to explain where does evil come from. But I like to actually turn the guns specifically on atheism because remember, atheism is just their view is that the world is just time plus chance acting on matter, right? Just matter in motion with a bunch of chance randomness. And there's nothing outside the material world. It's all it's all material. There's nothing immaterial. Therefore, there is no standard for right and wrong. To call anything evil, you got to have a standard. And atheism has no standard. And so I like to turn the guns and say, yeah, we do have a problem of evil that we have to, to work through. 
But you, your worldview is evil, no problem. And we know we can't live that way, right? Well, we do have, we have a standard and it's God's will and it's God's character. And here we have the entrance of evil through this serpent. And in the time of writing in the ancient Near East, serpents were common. They were symbols of protection. They were symbols of fertility. They were venerated as life-giving goddesses, not in God's world. This is no life giver. This is a life destroyer. And this serpent is Satan himself. Listen to Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This, the dragon is the serpent who's the devil. He's Satan. He's the accuser. He's deceptive. He's crafty. He's shrewd. He's strong. He's not to be taken lightly. But he wants us to take him lightly. He wants us just living as if he didn't exist. He wants our guard down. He wants us just to coast as if coasting was an option. The less we're aware of his reality, the easier it is for him to do his work. He is filled with malevolent brilliance. And he has methods. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. This word, maybe your translation says methods. The Greek word is methodias. You can hear our English word in it. Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He has methods. He has schemes. He knows where to set traps. And he's a liar. Listen to the way Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in John 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. There's no truth in him. Friends, listen, he wants to deceive you. His desire is for you to believe lies. We have an enemy and he wants to destroy your life. We've got to wake up to the spirituality of the world. I remember seeing a, a book trailer for a book on temptation several years ago. I would have showed it, but it's pretty dated. Uh, let me just mention two scenes that, that are in this book trailer. The book trailer is on the temptation of Jesus and what it means for us. And it has these uh, married couple and they're in the kitchen and they're just fuming angry at one another. And you can see it kind of rising. There's no audio to it, but you can just kind of see the anger rising and they begin to lash out at one another. And of themselves, if they're not thinking biblically, they think, well, I'll just have a spat with my spouse who doesn't, doesn't have it right. But in the, in the book trailer, there's a serpent slithering through the kitchen floor. Just a powerful scene of we have an enemy. Yeah, we have our own sin issues and they have the world, but we have an enemy that wants marriages at odds. And then it cuts to another scene. And there's a young man and he's, he's, in an empty, he's in an empty house and he's looking at his screen and very clearly he's about, about to look at some things on this screen that will destroy his soul. And he may think he's the only one there, but then there's this serpent that slithers through his feet in the chair. 
We have an enemy. He's the tempter, the deceiver. So part of our battle, friends, is realizing we're in a battle. Not against flesh and blood, although that might be hard to believe today. We've got to realize the battle is not against people. It's against the principalities and powers. Friends, if Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is, and if Satan is real, and he is, there's no neutrality in the world. There's no coasting. The faster we learn this, the better. Every square inch, every little nook and cranny of your life is claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ and counterclaimed by Satan, the father of lies. As we saw in Romans, every person either submits to God's word or seeks to suppress it. As Jesus says, you are either for me or you are against me. There's no middle ground. It's team Jesus or team serpents. And so let's live and let's think and let's teach accordingly. The serpent is shrewd. Now, second, notice his, his schemes. Look again at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? A few weeks ago, I mentioned that Genesis 1 uses a certain term for God, Elohim. And it speaks to his transcendence because he's the creator of all things. But in Genesis 2, where Moses kind of zooms in to the creation of mankind, the terminology shifts from just God, Elohim, to Lord God, Elohim, Yahweh. And Yahweh's God's covenant name, his personal name. And so in Genesis 2, 3, and 4, every time God is mentioned, it's Yahweh, God. Except for right here. The serpent doesn't use his personal name. Because... Satan doesn't know him. In fact, Satan hates him. And what's his method here? What are the serpent's schemes? He questions the word of God and he seeks to sow doubts about the word of God. Did God really say? He questions the word and he's been doing the same thing ever since. In fact, it's his main tactic. He does not want people taking God at his word. How does he do it today? Well, lots of ways, but it's really the same way that he's always done it. Through the distortion of the word, through false teaching. I don't think we are on guard nearly enough, at least not on guard as much as the Bible would have us be on guard. You know, there's 27 books of the New Testament. 25 of them warn against false teaching. And the vast majority, I need to check, it might be all of them, but the vast majority of those warnings are saying that false teachers will arise from among you. Of course, the world's going to have faulty teaching. The warning again and again of Scripture, though, is from among you will arise false teachers. People who claim the name of Christ, profess to be Christians, will lead you astray. And so we've got to be on guard even in the church. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light this is why other passages speak of false teachers being wolves in sheep's clothing if they came in in wolves we wouldn't worry about them right and this is why we've got to realize that most false teachers today are very nice people they don't come out with things they're very nice kind gentle people 
He says, so it's no surprise if it's his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Did God actually say? I try to reread the pastoral epistles regularly. Uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so I'll read them, you know, fairly regularly. And this last week, I decided to do it again and just take some notes. And what stuck out this time, this is what I love about God's word. It's something different every time. What stuck out this time as I was reading is just the abundance of the importance of guarding teaching, 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 guarding sound doctrine, rebuking those who oppose it again and again and again. First Timothy is six chapters. Second Timothy is four chapters. Titus is three chapters. Do you know how many verses Talk about the importance of teaching and guarding sound doctrine. 48 verses. It's one of the main things pastors are called to. Incredibly important. Last week, I quoted a couple. We talked a little bit about homosexuality, and I quoted a couple liberal Bible professors that said, yeah, the Bible does condemn homosexuality very clearly. But now we know, one even said, if you remember, it does teach it, but we appeal to another authority, and that authority is our own experience. Friends, we just need to call that what it is. That's satanic. Liberalism starts with, did God actually say? Well, you know, I know it, I know it sounds like that, but what actually is taking place is that in the original context, there's all this stuff that only elite scholars like myself know about, and the biblical teaching was only addressing that specific point. So actually, it means the opposite of what it sounds like to, sounds like it means to you simple-minded Bible readers. That kind of thing is said all the time, and it's said with forked tongues. Of course, he uses the world as well to question the word of God and his main pulpit is the media, the web, the news, streaming services. What we've got to know is we've just got to be on guard. Discipleship is happening all the time. A vision of the good life is being laid out all the time. We were watching the NBA on uh, Friday, I guess, which is becoming really hard to do now with all the politics. We were watching the NBA though and you know the, dread, the, the dreaded commercials. <laughs> and one of my sons was like, that was a commercial about a drink. But the vast majority of the commercial had nothing to do with the drink, right? Because what is it? It's this vision of the good life. And then here's the drink. So if you just buy this drink, you'll be happy and you'll be skinny and you'll be pretty and you'll have lots of friends. A false vision of the good life is constantly being pushed. He's the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age. And he is about the, the business of indoctrination. And it's happening all the time. Again, there's no neutrality in the world. And so we've got to be on guard. The most dangerous worldview is the one that we don't realize we're imbibing. And notice what he does here. The enemy of God smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. And when a person puts himself above the word of God, he's being inspired by the devil himself. He questions God's word. But not only that, he wants God to look restrictive. He wants God to look like a miser. As if God is not the most generous being and out for our absolute best. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But look at chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree 
of the garden. An ocean of yeses with one clear prohibition. By the way, where's Adam? You know, another one of the methods of Satan is to make men passive. How should this have gone down? Serpent slithers over. Adam steps in. Takes his wife by the hand. Excuse me, darling. Sets his homemade axe on the head of the serpent. That's what should have happened. Instead of the serpent leading the woman, the serpent should have become Adam's new snakeskin boots. In fact, notice how the enemy subverts and reverses God's created order. Remember what we've seen in these chapters. God had created the man. He creates the man and calls him to work and keep the garden. And then he creates the woman to help the man, Genesis 2.18. And both are then to rule and subdue, including Genesis 1, the creeping things. Here we have a creeping thing going to the woman, not the man, and ruling over them. The serpent knows God's order and intentionally subverts it, the exact opposite of what God intended. And this, again, is the problem of mankind. Let me read from Romans where we see something similar. 118, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Did God actually say... For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here it is, and exchanged the glory of of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Rather than honor God, they listen to creeping things. Which leads us to our third point, and that is self-salvation, our default mode. Look at Genesis 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now this is subtle, but notice how Eve distorts God's word. First, she minimizes God's provision. Look at what she says in verse two there. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but again, look at chapter 2, verse 16. What does God actually say? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. She left out surely and she left out every. She diminishes his goodness. Do you have a tendency to do that? You do. <laughs> and so do I. It's the tendency of the fallen human predicament to think about the glass half empty versus half full. We minimize his goodness in a whole host of ways. And one of the main ways is by being ingrates. We take God for granted so much. I mean, just consider what his image bearers have done. Remember, God created out of nothing, 
Creation ex nihilo, he had a blank canvas. And look what he has done through his people. People who are woe and, you know, woe is me type man said, I just don't have a lot of patience for. Yeah, life is hard right now in a lot of ways, but it is the best time to be alive than has ever been in the history of the universe. I mean, just this morning, what has, what has God's image bearers done? They have brought forth the world's potential in a whole host of ways that we benefit from. I woke up this morning in a house with ceilings. I didn't put them up. Indoor plumbing. Central air conditioning, a way to store food. Farmers in Colombia subdued the earth and tended coffee plants because God loves us. And so I could go to the grocery store and buy bags and then bag of beans and push a button that grinds them up because someone made blades and sharpened them. And I got water out of my wall. And I put it together and I pushed a button and two minutes later, my house was filled with the aroma of glory (laughs) from beans that grow in the ground. And I sat down on my way here in these padded seats in this big hunk of metal and again with some air conditioning and I pushed this little pedal and it took me 15 miles in 15 minutes. And I can see you all very clearly. I take these things off, I just see a blur. But I can see you clearly because those made in the image of God subdued sand and made glass. And now I can see you and your smiling faces. Not all of you are smiling. And then they, they messed with the glass and the sand and now we have telescopes. And so we can warn people, Delta's coming, watch out. And then we have microscopes and we can learn about germs and microbes and COVID-19 and how it spreads and how long it lasts. And in my pocket, I have a device that has more computing power than existed in the world when we put a man on the moon. And I'm reading the very words of God. The God who created all things hasn't left us in the dark. He's spoken and he's preserved it. And it's right here and it's on paper. And I didn't have to chop down this tree. And it's wrapped in this goat skin. I didn't have to kill that goat. I didn't skin it. And I got about 12 of these laying around. And in this device in my pocket, there's about another 200 translations. And it tells us how to know the God of this world and how to find joy and life in him. And though I deserve instant condemnation, you know, that's the only thing we've earned today. You know, the only thing you and I deserve right now, instant condemnation. But here we are, alive. And not only this life, but life eternal. Because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. You know, we couldn't conquer death. You know, when you die, you're put in a casket and then you're put in a big concrete block. It weighs 2,700 pounds before it goes into the grounds. I couldn't budge that lid, (laughs) neither can you. But Jesus can and will. He arrested death and he arose with our freedom in hand. He bore the penalty we deserved. Loved us and gave himself for us. Our names are written in the book of life. He's filled us with his spirit. We have the empowering presence of God within us. Yet, we minimize his provision. We bellyache and complain about the most petty things. We minimize his generosity just like Eve. But notice she also magnifies God's strictness. Look again at Genesis 3.3. 3. 
God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But look again at chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God never said you couldn't touch the tree. Eve added that. She minimizes God's provision and then magnifies God's strictness. She adds to his word. And listen, we're prone to that as well. Adding to the word, putting our preferences on the same level as the word of God and then often imposing them on others. Here we have the birth of legalism. It's been plaguing us ever since. Adding to what God requires. To pick on ourselves here for a moment, if Baptists are known for anything, they're known that you can't drink, you can't dance. Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. But the Bible actually celebrates both of those in moderation. The Bible clearly condemns sexual immorality and drunkenness, but we add to that. And that's a tendency of religiously zealous people. We want to add. Let's, let's put a hedge around it. We want to be more holy than God. Now to get us in trouble, listen to the way Jesus rebukes religious leaders who sought to add to God's word in Mark chapter 7. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition." We minimize God's provision, we magnify his strictness, and that combination, friends, is a joy zapper. And add to that, our enemy is the accuser. Satan loves for you to feel guilty. And you know what he loves even more than guilt? False guilt. Because if he can make us feel guilty, we're useless. But that's not all. She also weakens the penalty. Look at verse 3 there at the end. She says, lest you die, but look at chapter 217 there at the end. God has said, lest you surely die. The certitude of death is removed. She diminishes his goodness, adds to God's word, and then weakens the penalty. And so we avoid or we distort teaching about God's judgments. You know, most Christian best-selling books say little to nothing about God's holiness, God's transcendence, God's wrath, hell, or sin. Bruce Ware was one of my professors at Southern in Louisville, and we had him here last year, but I'll remember one thing he said. He said that most megachurches, now not all megachurches are bad, there's some really good ones, but he said that most megachurches grow their churches by not telling people most of what God says. We soften the hard parts. Let me just encourage you, don't do that. Don't believe the lie. I mean, what's your motive? Why would you do it? Is it because you want to be liked by the world? That's a real temptation. Let me soften the hard parts. I want to be liked by the world. But listen, it's not going to work. It's never enough. It's a dead end road. Maybe you're like, you know what? Let me soften the hard parts because I think it'll make the faith more palatable. 
I want to reach people, so I'm going to soften the hard parts. Friends, if people aren't interested in Christianity, they're not going to be interested in almost Christianity. Watered down Christianity. We soften the word. And we do this personally when we don't take our own sin seriously. When we don't heed the warnings of Scripture. Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We confess it and we mortify it, put it to death. And we shouldn't soften the language. We don't say we struggle or we're broken. We call it sin. We call it a spade, a spade. Part of getting out of the darkness into the light is calling it what it is. It's not soften the word. These errors began in the garden and they plague us still. And so, church, what should our response be? Trust his word and trust his work. Trust that God's word is sufficient and rest in the sufficiency of Christ. God's word is good. It's pure. It's true. Don't take away. Don't add. Don't don't add. Don't soften. Just think what we've seen about God's word so far in Genesis chapter 1. Starting in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then we see again and again, and God said, and God said, and God said. The universe comes into being through the word of God. And so submit to the word. Know that God's way is best. Do we want life and order, even if it's politically incorrect? Or do we want chaos and death? Those are our alternatives, Christ or chaos. The enemy wants you doubting God's word. It's truth and it's goodness. So trust his word and trust his work, which ultimately points to the finished work of Christ. The enemy is the accuser. He wants you feeling guilty. He wants you feeling inadequate. He wants you looking inward. He wants you in performance mode, treadmill living. He wants you focusing on anything but the cross. It's always been that way, even in the Gospels. Let me read from Matthew. Maybe you remember this story in Matthew 16 where Peter tries to bypass the cross. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wants to bypass the cross. And Jesus says, That's satanic. The kingdom comes through the cross. And without the cross, there's accusation. But with the cross, there's nothing to accuse the saints of. So stay focused on the cross. Don't look inward, look outward. For every one look in, look ten looks at the cross. Stay at the foot of the cross. When you sin, go to the cross immediately. Don't try to beat yourself up for a day and a half. Go to him immediately and remind yourself. You know what? The enemy's right. That's the hard part here, right, is because so much of our guilt is actually legitimate guilt because we're fallen and we will continue to sin until the day we die. What's the response of the Christian? Satan, you're right. 
I am unworthy. I do deserve death and hell. To quote Luther, but what of it? I know the son of God. And you preach the gospel to the accusations, to the accuser. And his flaming darts are put out by the shield of faith. I am cursed. But Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's sufficient. His work is finished. Church, the enemy wants to make you doubt God's word and doubt God's work. Resist it. We must fight to have and to hold onto a high view of the sufficiency of God's word and a high view of the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word. So much here in these first few verses, first few chapters that gives us a blueprint for the way your world works. And Father, we confess to be all too similar to our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Pray that we would not be those who minimize your goodness. Oh, may we not take anything for granted. May we be a people brimming with gratitude for all that you've done for us. For the way you've developed the world. The way we have called to be a part of developing your world. Spreading your glory. May we not be those who magnify your strictness and try to add to your word. May we believe in its sufficiency. May we not be those who soften the hard parts of scripture, but speak truly and clearly. And oh God, we're so thankful for the finished work of Christ. May we trust your word and may we glory in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. May we never move far from it. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.